Welcome back to episode two of Breakaway, a new series that we're doing here on Dauntless Dialogue. We're gonna be releasing one episode a week where we are interviewing whistleblowers from the Ostensible Secret Space Program. With me today is Tony Rodriguez, a survivor of the 20 and back, and he has quite the fascinating story that he's sharing with us one piece at a time. Now today we're gonna to be diving more into his experience on board the Dark Fleet craft and some of the other experiences that he had while he was in the solar system and outside the solar system. So Tony, why don't you start us off today by giving us a brief description of some of the craft that you were on? Well, like I said, the first one, um, uh, I had made a few trips from Earth to the moon and that was on your standard TR-3B one, and then there were smaller crafts. I was stationed on Mars for a time, and there were smaller craft there. Um, the ones I ended up working on on series, the first one was, I never really saw it on the from the outside of it, and I only was allowed in the bottom part of it, which was a small area. Um, you know, I'd like to think the size of maybe 5,000 square feet total that I saw of the craft on, on our deck. I never really left it other than to leave it. And I never saw it from the outside. When I got out off the umbilical, it was, there was a door, so you couldn't see the craft, and there was a train. There was a train station, like, so I just immediately got on my train and left. So that first one was like, just like a submarine on the inside, uh, more roomy. Uh, there was there was more room to it. There were some small areas, but there were there were big rooms in, in it uh, that were not like a submarine, not super, super cramped. <clears throat> Uh, there was a lot of tubing, a lot of piping that went through it that moved radioactive water and other chemicals uh, that went through. And that was the highly corrosive chemicals went through it. And so we ended up having to replace valves that went bad quite often, uh, that they would they would uh, corrode on the inside because of whatever chemical they used. But that was just the area that we were. And then there were hydraulics that happened. There were, there were hydraulic processes that happened above us that the hydraulics were located where we were at. And we basically would always maintain the level of fluids. Sometimes we would go and replace hoses and things to those, but um, but we maintained hydraulic fluids too. For and I have no idea what they were—doors opening or whatever it was, lifts or things. But um, that was pretty much my job there. And so, and there were the submarine doors that you had to step. We were always—you would always be in a hurry. We'd always have to run and get something real quick and come back, and you would trip on that thing. You'd think after years and years that you wouldn't, but it's true. You, um, you mind us elsewhere, and we'd always. I tripped on that thing 
hundreds and hundreds of times over stepping over the threshold door. So the next ship I was on, I was very happy that it still had a threshold, still had doors that pocket like a pocket door that could close, not not an open swing door, but it still had a threshold, but it was only a couple inches tall. It was very easy to get over. And I never really tripped on it. And that was a much bigger ship. And um, I, w I was, it had five cargo bays, two, two on each side that could collapse into one giant cargo bay, which we never did. But they had walls that were could pressurize, so you could open up to vacuum with space, and the walls could open, so they could rearrange the cargo bay. And then there was another, not exactly a cargo, but a cargo cargo storage underneath the main cargo bay that was probably only six feet tall worth of packages. We had packages of things that we offered for trade down there in that storage, and the guys always hated going down there and have say oh we got to roll out package a you know for instance they were numbered but we have to roll out package a and so the guys had to go down there and get the stuff and bring it up to the cargo bay and then we'd open the door and unload it offload it we could offload things into space we offloaded cargo into the vacuum of space there was a it was a vortex loader and uh what it did was the cargo it would shine a laser on the cargo so that people knew to stand back it was a safety light like a light it was a laser a, a bright white light and above it, there would be, it would make a vortex and it would lift it up. And in zero gravity, it would make two vortexes and move them around like that. And it would pick up cargo and move it out or move it in. So um, the loader was fun to use. We fought over it. Whenever there was, whenever we needed somebody to jump on the, uh, the vortex loader, we call it the auto loader. Um, whenever somebody needed to get on that, we'd race to it because whoever got there first got to do it. And, uh, you didn't really need a lot of training to use it. It was like a video game. It was a really easy job. But that's what I did. And when we got on, we when we got cargo on, my job was to measure it and uh, weigh it. And then I put it. I I would take along. I had a clipboard, a little clipboard, and I'd make notes. Had a little thing, you know. I'd make notes, and then I'd go back to my station, which was a touch screen on a on like a pillar. On a, you know, it was a. I'll send you a picture I've drawn of it. And I could log in my D number and then I could work at any of the stations. Uh, you know, we were like right above the, in between the cargo bay and the next deck up, there was a little space that we worked in. And I would sit there for hours and just log in all the weights and dimensions. Anything really tall went into the main cargo bay in the back that, in, that was much bigger. And then that one could lower the floor. They could lower the floor and create space. It had an entire hydraulic floor that could go down three or four feet. And the bar that, that they could. So those guys got all the tall. They dealt with anything that was tall, I think over a meter and a half tall or meter, meter and a quarter, something like that. Anything that was tall had a tipping, had another uh, dimension to it of a tipping report. They had the way the, I don't know, figure out the top of the, There was a tipping report and I didn't have to deal with that. The guys in the main cargo bay did. So I had that cargo bay and I had a few guys under me that would go and I would tell them how to arrange things. And the computer would spit out after I put in all the dimensions of everything, the computer would spit out on how to stack it. And I would just go and oversee that with the guys. That was basically my job for, I don't know, two and a half, three years. Okay. The end. And I would do briefings with the command in the mornings because they, I would, they kept all the cargo bait guys, all the cargo engineers that were in charge of the cargo bait guys, 
were there in the morning briefing. And they would speak in German and they had a translator, they could flip it on and off. And we could understand them when they wanted to talk to us, they'd turn it on. And you could hear it. it was a, there was a translator, translating tech. I don't know if it was an implant in my head or if it was local. It worked in the elevator. I remember standing outside the elevator of the ship with two guys talking in German. And as soon as we passed through the door, I could understand what they were saying was English to me. And they realized it and shut up. And then when we started going, they talked they talk to me. It's a little bit small talk. And when the elevator, the door opened, they walked back out. And when they walked out the door, it was right back to German again. I couldn't understand them. So that was it. and uh, so that was there, and it was at the train station. But like when you right when you got off the ship, there was an area there that the translator worked, because there was a guy from Italy. There was a guy that spoke Italian that worked in the main, in the main cargo bay that was funny, and so we'd rub into him all day, couldn't understand what he said. So we'd catch him at the exit at the end of the day and say, "What were you talking about, man?" And he was funny. He was kind of like uh, uh, he kind of had like a really mean like a mean sense he'd be mean to you but he, so his sense of humor was was like uh, aggressive you know but um that was basically where i spent my days uh so I, I did in the morning i didn't go into the rear umbilical of the ship i went into the forward umbilical of the ship with the crew with the with the actual crew that were not slaves and that's very important that was the first time i ever really rubbed elbows with them and uh, i wore a different color suit i wore a uh dark gray or light gray and I wore a dark gray or it was vice versa I wore a light gray and they wore a dark gray I think that's what it was I was light gray and then the uh there was guys and the crew that wore black and there were people that wore navy blue a dark navy blue and then the command some of them wore like a like a, a blue with a gray on it I would go there in the morning and take the elevator up and go to the command briefing sit down I had coffee they'd have muffins and stuff there bagels that was my breakfast, counted as breakfast. They regulated everything we did. Um, I was only allowed to go to the bathroom for a short time. I had a lunch. And if you didn't eat lunch, you got in trouble. You had to eat your three meals a day, no matter what, or they'd send you to the doctor, and the doctor would be unpleasant. And um, But I'd get up in the morning, I'd go there, and there was a long, it was a table with a long white room, and it looked like the panel on an airplane, like with the uh, grid of fabric glued to a plastic paneling. That's what the walls were in the front, in the command area. And um, there was a long white table and they all had their own little tablet pads that they used. And so they would go between each other and see, all, and I, most of the time I sat there with my little clipboard and they would call on me and usually ask how much room is left in the cargo bay that was available. And that was my report and that was it. And then we talked, you know, they would talk and um, it was just like hanging out with guys. I'm, I mean, they were German guys that not, they were not born on Earth. They were born on Ceres. So, um, but they were people just like you and me, uh, just a different culture. Now, Tony, did you have a job title and, and were you ever given promotions during your time? Well, there? The, going to the cargo engineer was the promotion from the original title. And there, there was a rank, there was a number. It was, I don't want to say E, but it, there was a number like a, or a letter and a number, like an E2, like a D2 or something which was levels below the lowest rank in, that they had. And they had naval rank, like the, the top, there was a, I remember, I always remembered, the second my head, they had a Corvette captain, and then a cap, captain or capitan, captain. There was a captain, there was another one, and there, there was a Corvette captain, and I always remembered that word. 
And I looked up later, the German Navy does still did use ranks like that. But it went all the way down and there was a rank. And then there, I was just like one rank. I was two ranks below it. And I got promoted to the rank below actually being a serviceman, which I could never could because I was a, technically I was a slave. Hmm. Um, now I got demoted from, from that eventually. The other thing about the ship is bef- when... When the old ship broke down and was decommissioned, there were a period of months in between when the other ship wasn't finished being built yet. Or it was built, but it was being converted to do the job it was going to do. Like, you know, like whatever they bought it from whoever built it or brought it. I don't know. How, I don't know the politics involved, but basically the ship came to series, sat in the hangar bay, and then they modified it for to do to set it up how they wanted it. And that was a few months. During that time, they came and got me. It was pretty cush, but uh, I went to classes. They put me through like a phys ed thing, and I went to new classes to learn my job. And uh, they came and got me one day, and I didn't have to go. I was, you know, it was dreadful because it was like long hours, and it was, you know, it was boring. They came and got me one day and took me to the hangar area. And at the top of it, there was, imagine like a window, imagine a giant hangar uh, room. 500 feet tall at least 600 feet tall very big by thousands of feet long and wide it was just a massive wind looked like when you're looking out the airplane onto a tarmac from an airport out onto the tarmac how there's a row of seats when you're waiting at your gate it was a window like that that looked down and i could see the front of the ship from above it and i thought it was just gorgeous it was beautiful it was it had the lines like a stealth like a like a B two bomber, you know, it had the the stealth kind of lines, and it was a blue, it was a black with like a blue, like a like a black with a blue tint color, and um, there were a scaffolding on the on the like on the ship on the front of it. There was scaffolding; it was under construction. They were building something like a big protruding like a tower in the middle of the ship. I never saw it finished. But then I took a a guy came and got me. Uh, I was supposed to go there and meet somebody, and I did. I reported and met someone. I had to stay there for a minute, uh, 30 minutes. And then a guy came and got me and he was in a different uniform, he's greasy. So he was one of the flight crew people that worked down below. And we rode an elevator, like a lift, but it was an industrial, like an elevator where you're exterior and you could see, I rode it down in that big room to the bottom. And then he had a six wheeled, like a golf cart, like an electrical golf cart, like it was six wheels truck. And we, we rode under the ship and through the back of it, and it was rounded in the back. It was. It came to a taper, and it was flat across the back where the where the car, the main cargo bay doors were. And then I, he pointed out my. He said, "You're going to work there." I said, "Why am I doing this?" They didn't even tell me why. He said, "You have to be familiar with your cargo doors, so in case something happens, you need to know what it looks like on the outside." So this is going to familiar. You just get one trip. We rode down under the ship. I saw. I saw my cargo doors and so there were some windows and things, you know, when you're up close to it. And then he rode me back and I, uh, another guy came and I didn't ride the elevator back up. There was another guy came and got me and walked me back to a train and I went back to class. And I, it was just beautiful. The, um, I was like stoked that I saw that. You know, it was, I didn't, I didn't get out much, so it didn't take a whole lot to impress me back then. But it was a pretty big ship and I've done the math on, uh, we used to pick up cargo at Diego Garcia, and so I've used Google Earth and done the math, and I, I estimate the ship was about a thousand feet long by about uh, 600 feet wide, 
and it had to be a different dimension tall, maybe four, four or 500 feet tall. Um, but that's what it been, about a thousand feet long or um, 600 meters or something like that. So it wasn't the biggest ship out there, but it was a fast cargo cargo ship. You still there, Adam? It looks like you're lagging. Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. And um, you're reminding me of some real world examples, um, some evidence that we can look at. When Gary McKinnon pulled off what was called the biggest computer hack or the biggest uh, military hack of all time, he broke into some NASA servers and some Navy Space Command servers and he found evidence of a couple of things. He found some flight manifests from some of these ships which contained, um, there was different categories, different headers for different columns. Some of them said terrestrial officers and others said non-terrestrial officers and others there were you know some of the um, manifests for cargo loads and it said fleet to fleet transfers and so you know I guess I'm gonna throw that back at you and I want to kind of drive home a little bit on what types of cargo do you think you were moving since this was such a big part of your job did you ever were you allowed to ask questions and did you ever snoop into that well, officially, no. Uh, the, my official responsibility was to not care about the cargo. I, you know, I got a box. It was my it was my job to make sure the box did not get damaged. Make sure it got stacked efficiently, and it made sure it got to where it was going. And it was none of my business what was in it. It did, however, open up cargo. There was cargo that was broken. I saw inside of it. There were. We took everything you can imagine. We took water. We took people. We took. Um, crates we took cardboard we took giant graphite things that uh boxes that were made out of like a graphite that could go they were pred that could handle vacuum we took weapons we took missiles we took um 55 gallon drums of chemicals we took uh um things from our t-shirts we took 10 we took well, one time we had like 10,000 pairs of military boots that we took back to series we picked it up at Diego Garcia, it was just surplus. So they took it, it was free, free for them. So they did what they were military boots. And the only reason I know that is because when I walked in in the morning, one of the girls from uh, the front of the ship, I think navigation or something, was showing them off. Said, Look at my boots we got, you know, these are what came in. So that's how I knew, that's the only way I knew what was in the cargo. I just remember giant crate, big crates that came in. But um, we took things, I got in trouble. Um, it's a long story, but I got in trouble for reporting one opened up and I looked inside and there was coffee and it was on the manifest of things that were banned. I guess coffee to other ETs is a um, narcotic, like a very strong drug to certain ET races. So it, it was being sold as for that reason, not because of what we would think coffee. And so I reported it and because I did my job, but really they were sneaking it in there and they knew about it. So it was, I wasn't supposed to know so it caused a big trouble. So I didn't get in trouble. I didn't get in trouble for it. I did my job correctly, but they got in trouble. And so it was, it caused a big deal and then they took it the next day. But um, because I found them and the guys made me drink coffee every morning. You're drinking coffee here, you know? And it was like the running joke with me. So Tony, I want to ask you a question regarding uh, this Diego Garcia base, how, in your opinion, how is it that you were able to bring in a, a craft down into you at, you know, um, 
into Earth's airspace, or did you have a scout craft that was smaller, or was it cloaked? Well, it was... It had stealth, like the kind of technology, like the they they keep that from you purposely, I guess, so that um, I guess other ETs can't psychically scan the crew in the back and learn about the craft. So they compartmentalize the tech. Uh, so I wasn't sure about a lot of the things on the craft. Um, Diego Garcia had um, was an American place, and it was ran by American personnel, but only a handful of them knew about us. The rest of the personnel had no idea what was going on. We would come at three or four in the morning, two in the morning there, and come vertically down into a certain parking lot, you know, like a big parking lot area, and everybody was uh, gone. You know, like it's very, the, they ran a tight ship there. People had to go home. There was a curfew on Diego Garcia for people. They had to be in there. They had to be in at night. And um, so there was only a handful of Americans. There were guys, we did missions where they had to come with us, and they knew that they were going to be blanked. They knew they were going to have their memories erased when they got back. And um, they were, uh, there were a lot of things that we weren't, they weren't aware of us doing. But there was always a, we had to sign a manifest when we picked up cargo there. And they gave us bootleg stuff that we weren't supposed to have. I think other whistleblowers, uh, researchers have a problem with me saying that we had listened to music from the earth because that's a big no-no up there. And, uh, but there were bootleg things, uh, entertainment that found its way to series for the colonists to listen to uh, earth music and uh, books and stories and things, even movies got bootlegged through Diego Garcia up there, which is a huge, which is a huge illegal illegality in the secret space programs. They, they keep the, and um, they don't want to listen to it. There's mind control components to the music we listen to. So they didn't want to be exposed to that, but they did. People snuck that stuff through there. Uh, there was a demand for it. And so, uh, Trying to think some other Tony, I have a question regarding Diego Garcia. So some of our listeners might remember the missing flight um, out of Malaysia, 370, which there were a lot of conspiracy theories about where it went. And some images surfaced in the months succeeding this event. Um, someone had supposedly, um, you know, snuck a, an iPhone um, in their rear end and were able to manage to snap a picture of Diego Garcia base and there was um, you know geo locating metadata embedded deep within the picture which you just can't fake so I'm wondering if there's any overlap with a conspiracy theory like that it seems like there's a lot of shady things that are connected to Diego Garcia well, it was first okay. From from what I know, this was I was there way before the Malaysia flight would have happened. Um, it was a spaceport. It was a spaceport for goods for the Germans that came through. We had we there were times when we had to wait for shipments. We got there and the shipment was late, and so we would go out to sea. They let us go swimming. There were times we went to the Turtle Bay or Turtle Cove. It's Turtle Bay, I think, in the nook at the bottom part of Diego Garcia, we went swimming. And they would let the crew swim. We, we had to wait a couple hours. And uh, they were confident that people that weren't classified, weren't uh, didn't have security clearance to see us there, wouldn't see us. 
So they had that under control there. Um, but absolutely, it was a port. We were getting goods. That was our joke. We always joked about it. What are we picking up? We're picking up goods from, uh, we're picking up Russian, Russian military goods off a of Chinese boat from Singapore, a base with an Italian first name and a Spanish second name in the Indian Ocean. That's an American base going to the Germans in space. Like it was a running joke. We kept adding on to that. We kept adding on, you know what I mean? As many nationalities to that sentence as we could. We're picking up Chinese cargo from a, from a Singapore boat, you know, at a base with an Italian first name and a Spanish second name in the Indian Ocean, ran by Americans, going to Germans, you know. And so that's how I remembered it. I remember, always remembered that was like a that was like a running joke for us. But um, I remember one time we, we the one of the officers from America, the Americans said, "Look, you guys are running up a big tab. You guys need you're in the millions here of money that you owe." And so the next morning at the at the briefing, security briefing, or the mission briefing on the ship, the next back on series, the next morning, I brought it up, raised my hand, says, "Anybody have anything to add?" And I raised my hand, I said. The guy at Diego Garcia says we need to pay our tab that we're running it up, and they burst into laughter <laughs> because they weren't paying anything. It was an illusion to the to the guys giving us the cargo. They think that there's a trade going on, that there's a financial arrangement. There's not. They got everything they took from us. They, whenever they needed any kind of military hardware or anything for that matter, it got shipped to Diego Garcia, unloaded, waited there in that hangar. And we got, we came in in the middle of the night and scooped it up, and there was no charge. So it's that's that's the kind of level, uh, you know, it's getting paid for by the trillions of dollars that's missing of the black op, black ops or whatever, you know, the Pentagon missed. That's how the accounting is working. The Germans weren't paying anything. They looked at whenever whenever I was on Ceres Colony, it was a symbol that represented the Earth Earth Colony. It had a chain around it. It was the earth. It was a picture of the earth with a chain around it, to symbolize that it was enslaved. So that's how they. That's how they regarded us. They were not concerned with Earth's well-being at all. They concerned. They regarded it as something they owned. Okay, so Tony, help me connect some dots here. I guess I'm wondering how you got shuffled into a German secret space program when you were, you know, living in America. Can you square that circle for us? Yeah, well, I mean, it's easier if we go through chronological order, but basically I ended up in Seattle living in a private residence of a billionaire, and he was a practicing Satanist and obviously connected with the program. Um, after I had already been in Peru for a few years, and um, they were using that technology from the MK Ultra stuff. They were giving us me injections and putting me on shipments of cocaine from Porto to Wantansuyo, Peru, to Santa Marta, Colombia. They would ship up. It was a C-46, 46, 42, C-46 commando cargo plane. And I was just a kid. I was, you know, 10, 11 years old. And I guess they lost one of the planes and it was cocaine they were moving. And when we got up in the air, we'd fly over the state of Acre. And when we got into Colombia, he would, there, I had a handler, a guy that spoke English, and he would give me an in an IV drip put him I was a psychic for them like I would if there was something police or some bad weather they used me to navigate he said I he said he talked to through me I there were times that I talked fluent Spanish that he talked to his dead grandmother 
and uh, just I said all kinds of stuff. He, he he would always have a list of questions from people from the village during those trips, but I remembered none of really none of it. Some of it I do. Um, but they were putting me under and using me. That's how they're doing the drug war. That's how they're avoiding being caught. They have, they're using psychics. And you think this has got to be CIA tech. So that guy owned me privately and that was his little business running. And when I hit puberty, I lost that ability. And so I went back to Seattle and lived there. I was kind of like, um, in a, it was like an orphanage of other kids there. And we were being put through the pedal gate stuff. We were sex slaves. Uh, without going into too much detail, uh, I eventually washed out of that. They gave us medication every day and they changed it one day and I became, I was allergic to it. They said, if you either eat this or you're going to the military. And after three or four days, I would take that medicine and just vomit. I was just, I couldn't do it. And so they did. She took me and drove me up the road to the back of a parking lot behind a store. And two guys got me in a van, gave me an injection and I was off world. I woke up on the moon again. And I was trained for suicide missions as a support soldier for Mars and I was shipped to Mars. That that was the next step. I mean, I'm skipping through this without a lot of details just to get to it back to where you cover our question. I went to Mars and I was a support soldier and there was a, probably a dozen of us then. And uh, we did three combat missions with existing US uh, Marine soldiers on Mars. And we engaged, there are giant bugs that live on Mars. There are giant insects that live there, indigenous there. And we engaged them and had fatalities and as a result, the, I guess the bugs adapted quicker than they thought, and so they canceled the program. I was flown to a bigger city on Mars and uh, put through uh, aptitude testing, and I tested for skilled labor. And so then I went into ship repair, and they, they gave me classes, which was more like the MK Ultra stuff, movies and drugs. And then after that, then I was shipped to Ceres. So I think they were taking personnel or slave personnel and either trading them or selling them according to your aptitude. So if I would have been smarter, I could have been into communications or whatever, but I'd already been through, at that point in the 20 and back, I'd already been through enough um, mental abuse to where I wasn't exactly, uh, I didn't exactly have a great aptitude. Interesting. Have you ever considered that you might have actually done two 20 and backs? Did you ever wonder if you maybe did a 40 or a 60 and back? Well, no, I, I think that at, during one time that they sold us off to a race that had a different 20 and back technology. And what happened was they took all the slave, the German, the, the series colony Germans in trading with another race of uh, ETs, traded people to go on like short, like 10 and backs, which we weren't supposed to. But they, I guess they had a separate technology that was not a danger. Um, in other words, the 20 and back tech that we were using, they said that you know if you went through more than that or more than 20 years, you could be harmed. And I think that we went through that program and what happened was everybody committed suicide. So the deal didn't go through. They said that they got the first, they were trading technology for people, for manpower. And I guess that everybody committed suicide once they got on the other end of a shorter 20 and back inside of it. And I think I went through that, but I, um, I just don't have enough to really talk about it soundly. You know, it's vague. So I don't really talk about it a lot, but I think that happened. Wow, okay, another exciting episode behind us. As always, it seems like we just run out of time just when it's starting to get really juicy. Um, you'll have to tune in next week for more details. Uh, we're gonna dissect more of Tony's fascinating story. 
If you want to support this most essential work, you can head over to dauntlessdialogue.com. You can purchase some of our merchandise. We have uh, shirts and hoodies available and all the proceeds help to grow this channel. Those are available, available through teespring.com. Additionally, consider pledging $1 at patreon.com and we'll see you next week.